I'm going to read the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1 and explain more about why as, as we go here. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband, and we're not even going to get that far into Ruth today. I just read it for some context. So now we're going to pray, and then we'll talk more about this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the time that we were able to spend over the course of the last year um, hashing through the detail of Galatians. And um, with equal weight, with equal authority, um, we acknowledge that uh, Ruth is a gift to the people of God to tell us the gospel. So we look forward to beginning this short journey through this great book, and we cast our dependence on you so that you might help us walk through it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me get here to where I need to be. So, yeah, the plan is to spend the next four weeks in this book, Ruth, despite the fact um, that Mother's Day is nowhere near the next four weeks, which is typically when the book of Ruth is most commonly open, right? So the, the question kind of begs itself, what are we doing in this book? But what if I told you, as the slide here says, that the book of Ruth is not primarily about moms, but kings? Not primarily about Naomi or Ruth, but David and Jesus. Not primarily a love story between a man and a woman, but a redemption story between a God and his people. The book of Ruth is all of that and so much more. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I use the word primarily in each of those comparisons on purpose. So Ruth is unavoidably about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and it's a wonderful book to explore in a venue when the emphasis is something like Mother's Day, motherhood, womanhood, or when you're looking for an illustration of what Proverbs 31 teaches about womanhood and virtue. Likewise, the book of Ruth is, in every way, an amazing, riveting, pure love story between Boaz and Ruth. Again, the book of Ruth is all of that and more on one level. So hear me out, I am affirming that these people are not made-up people. The four chapters of Ruth really happened the way the four chapters of Ruth say they happened. And Ruth is in the Bible in part so that we would explore all of that 
and learn from all of that human-level interaction. So we can't and we won't ignore the human-level suffering and struggle and injustice and the responses that we see in the book and we'll feel for Naomi and we'll identify her with her and her sufferings and we'll ask time and time again why and how. And, and likewise, we'll kind of marvel at Ruth and to a degree we'll be challenged by her virtue and her sacrifice and her loyalty. And then Boaz, Boaz will emerge and stand out as this man of honor and an example to all of us men. And by the end of the story, we won't be able to help but celebrate the way that everything turns out for all three of those main characters in a way that seemed impossible at the beginning of the book in these first five verses that I've read this morning. And we will see, once again, we will affirm and we will praise that it is God behind it all. Every suffering, every struggle, every seeming injustice, as well as every unexpected way that this story turns for the good of those involved. So we'll affirm in Ruth some core beliefs that we rehearse here weekly, that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is just, that God is faithful. But we won't stop there because we can't stop there because Ruth is in the Bible, not only so that we would affirm all of that glorious, grounding, important, general, but so that we would also move toward and rejoice in the specific. So on one level, we will read the book of Ruth as is. We'll meet the characters, we'll see the setting, we'll encounter the conflict, we'll see the plot unfold toward the resolution, and we'll evaluate the narrative just like we would every other narrative, whether biblical or non-biblical. But because this narrative is in Scripture, and because our worldview sets a good and sovereign God over all things at all times, we read this story, and we will rightly seek to process what we see in the people and the places and the plot line in light of what we believe about the being of God and his sovereign purposes in this world. So on the one level, we read the book of Ruth as is, but then we rightly ask, why are things as is every step of the way in the good details and in the bad details in our answer every time is God. 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 Always God. In his sovereignty, for his purposes, in his goodness, for his glory, always God, never not God. And I think that we mostly here understand that trajectory, although I'm sure among us there's still debate concerning God's sovereign goodness in human suffering and injustice. But, but most of you, to some degree, at least see God in and behind and under and in front of the narrative that unfolds in the book of Ruth. But brothers and sisters, hear me out. If there's not more to this story than that God is generally sovereign and good in a story like this, in which people read and identify with the suffering and injustice and struggle that's in it because they suffer and they struggle and they're on the receiving end in this sin-cursed world of injustice as well, then God as sovereign and good in details like these is not only debatable at best, as in 
Well, you might see things that way. But that's easy from your perspective, your vantage point. But that's certainly not how I see things from my vantage point. It's debatable at best if it ends there. But it's offensive at worst as in, how dare you talk to me about God as sovereign and good right now. Go back to your easy life and good God because you clearly don't have a clue about what my life's like. In other words, to affirm, which I trust we do here, and for most of us, to affirm what I'm about to say has been a major um, progression in our understanding of the being of God. So to affirm that God is sovereign and good, and that always in every detail of life on planet Earth is One glorious, good, right, huge step. Step. But you have to be able to back that conclusion up as something that's more than just a general hunch. Or hope, or opinion, or just a healthy outlook on life that you're just choosing. So as we read the real-life story titled Ruth, we not only have to ground the details in God and his sovereign goodness, but we have to ask ourselves what that even means here in these details. What was this good and sovereign God that we declare stands in and over and under this story? What was he doing in and through the people, places, and good and bad details of this story. So it's one thing to be able to attribute life and details, both good and bad, to God in his sovereign goodness. But it is quite another to be able to explain from Scripture, here is why I, what I'm saying is more than just my take on life but actually rather a non-negotiable, unfailing anchor to my soul. And if we were to summarize the, here is why we attribute Ruth to God's sovereign goodness in, not despite, but in and through all of the suffering and loss and struggle, and then the obvious reversal of the circumstances for both Ruth and Naomi's good, here is why God in his sovereign goodness did what he did here, ultimately, Because before the foundation of the world began, God chose a people for his namesake and designated his son as their redeemer from sin and curse and death and eternal judgment. That's what Ruth's about. And when his people chose sin and curse and death and judgment over him, God did not back out and break the covenant, but remained faithful and made his eternal covenant known to fallen man in the form of earthly covenants that promised his people the same redemption that he planned within himself before the world began. And at every critical juncture along the way in human life, God reaffirmed his covenant, God reiterated his promise, and God clarified the details. Isn't that as we read from first to last and we come to the book of Ruth after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, by the time we get to Ruth, isn't that what we found? God as an eternal, covenant-keeping, promise-making God that at every critical juncture along the way so far has confirmed his covenant, 
reiterated his promise and clarified the details. Redemption would come through the seed of Eve, through the family of Abraham, even more specifically through the tribe of Judah, out of which tribe God said he would not only provide the redeemer of his people, but kings for his people. Kings who would uphold and enforce the law that he would give his people, but not just kings, plural, for his people, but ultimately a king. Who would not merely enforce the law among his people, but fulfill the law for his people and then die to redeem them from the curse of their rebellion, only to rise from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, and Satan, and then ascend back from where he came, where he rules and he reigns over his people at God's right hand until his kingdom is fully revealed and he reigns among his people forevermore. And the subjects of this story are living at one of those critical junctures along the way. So the book of Ruth is a record of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to redeem his people and establish a king over his people after God's own heart. Which is why we ultimately affirm that the book of Ruth, like every other book in the Bible, is about Jesus, whom we know as both redeemer and king. Now, it is probable that I, I need to find out where I'm supposed to be. There we go. It's probable that I said a few things about the book of Ruth that are um, new or even surprising to some of you. Um, and I say that because, I'm assuming that because for a significant period of my life, statements like, I opened with, such as, the book of Ruth is more about kings than women, David than Boaz, and ultimately about Jesus. Statements like that would literally be met with laughter and instant dismissal. Which is why for many, Ruth is good for Mother's Day or Women's Conference, but not much more. So if I'm going to suggest to you this morning... That Ruth is about kings and David and Jesus and redemption, then I should be able to back that up from Scripture. And the way that I want to back it up is just to follow the narrative through its natural setting, its conflict, its plot, and its resolution over the next four weeks. And today, we're going to be focusing on this setting, which sounds really boring. Setting. There there are multiple levels to the setting of Ruth. The first and most obvious is the setting that the book of Ruth itself describes. And we find it in the first few words of the book. I told Paul this morning, we're preaching on the first five words of the book of Ruth. And he said, by the time you go to the Philippines, you're going to be like in chapter two. I said, no, we're going to catch up. Which seems to be what I say every time, so who knows? He's probably right. Um, so first, first few words here. In the days when the judges ruled. The significance of that is found in the last verse of the book that comes before Ruth. I'm talking about Judges, chapter 21, and verse 25. 
So literally, one verse before Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 is Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And if you keep reading, the next verse says, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled. In other words, the people that we meet and the events that unfold in the book of Ruth all happens in those days when there was no king and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. So even though Judges slash Ruth was not the original order in which the Old Testament books fell, I do agree, nevertheless, with others that say there is in Scripture a deliberate link between the two books. And the link is deliberate because the author is starting us down the path of understanding what the book is ultimately about. It is about God providing his people a redeemer from sin and curse and the serpent and judgment on the one hand and a king who would rule over them in righteousness on the other hand. What Judges identifies as a problem in its final words, Ruth picks up intentionally and then seeks to solve in its opening words. It is God's provision of a redeemer who would rescue them from sin, lift the curse, reverse the effects of the fall, crush the head of the serpent, and then rule over them as king. Now, if that statement is true, if what Judges identifies as a problem in its final words, Ruth picks up on and sets out to solve in its opening words with that intentional link, then you would expect by the end of the book some kind of resolution, right? Is that fair? Well, let's briefly jump to the end of the book and see if what we've said holds. After all of the drama with Naomi losing everything and Ruth refusing to leave her side and the incredible way in which her relationship with Boaz develops and the tension behind whether or not the nearest relative would fill the role of the kinsman redeemer when all is said and done and Ruth and Boaz are together and Obed is born and Naomi is happy and full again how does the book of Ruth end I'll give you a hint it doesn't end by saying and they all lived happily ever after which if the book was primarily about Ruth and Boaz and Obed and Naomi, then you'd expect this kind of ending. Why would it not end with, and they all lived happily ever after? Brothers and sisters, it ends the opposite of sentimental and emotional. Ruth ends with one of those unbelievably, tongue-in-cheek, boring genealogies that are easier to skip than read. You've got to ask yourself the question, why? Why does Ruth end that way? Well, I think the easiest answer to that question is to just read the genealogy and see if the words themselves give us some kind of an indication. So, Ruth 4.18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. So Obed is Ruth and Boaz's son. But look, the author doesn't stop there. 
the author gives us two more generations. And when we ask the question, why, we read these words and we find the answer. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. And that's how the book ends. And it's not the only time the author does this. So just before that genealogy, we read the same thing. So back up in chapter 4 to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. and She bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. So why doesn't the author just celebrate the child who was born to Boaz and Ruth and what that means for Naomi and just leave the book there and everyone living happily ever after? And my answer is because his purpose was bigger. Again, not merely a child for a couple, as joyous and celebratory as that is, but a king for a nation, according to promise. If you're still not convinced, let me ask you this question. Why do you think verse 18, so the genealogy, why do you think verse 18 in chapter 4 starts with Paris? So, is that just random? Like the author of Ruth wanted to give some context to Boaz, so he just randomly decided to go back six, gen- six generations, but could have easily just gone back like three. He just chose six, randomly. Or, alternatively, was he being intentional again and creating another link? And my answer is he was being intentional again. And creating another link that clues us into the bigger, broader purpose of the book. So why does it start with Perez? Well, ask yourself the question, who was Perez? In short, Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. Which carries multiple significances in the book of Ruth. If you think back to Genesis 38, Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar is the Canaanite Wife given to Ur, who died before he and Tamar had children together. And when Judah's second son, Onan, refuses the role of what what would become known in the law as the kinsman redeemer, Judah instructs Tamar to wait for his third-born son to grow up so that he could fill that role. And when he grows up and doesn't fill that role, Genesis seems to pin that more on Judah than Shelah, or at least that's how clearly how Tamar processed it. So after the death of Judah's wife, Tamar and Judah, unknown to Judah but known full well to Tamar, because it's on purpose, engage in an incestuous relationship. And Tamar conceives and she gives birth to to two sons. What are their names? Perez, and Zerah. So on one level, 
there is the contrast between the double refusal of the role of the kinsman redeemer in relation to Tamar by Onan and Shelah and the incestuous relationship between Tamar and Judah that results leading to the birth of Perez and Zerah. And in Ruth, by contrast, there is the glad acceptance of that role by Boaz, leading to the birth of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's just one link. There's also the reality that both Tamar, the mother of Perez, and Ruth, the mother of Obed, grandmother of David, are both Gentiles. And when Matthew provides the kingly lineage of Jesus in chapter 1 of his gospel, he distinguishes these women by naming not only them, but Rahab and Bathsheba, as well as the only four women that are named in the genealogy. And I agree with Piper. Why did God do it this way? Well, if you think back to what we just studied in the book of Galatians, God included these women in the lineage of the birth, the incarnation of his son, so that nobody would ever boast in Jewishness. But, I think the most significant connection that the author of Ruth wants us to recall is the significance of Perez as the son of Judah through whom God would preserve his promise of a seed of the woman. The son of Abraham, the son of Judah who would crush the head of the serpent, lift the curse, reverse the effects of the fall, and rule over his people. So as I said at the beginning, at every critical juncture along the way of God fulfilling his eternal covenant to redeem a people for himself and a bride for his son, God reiterated and he clarified the promise. He confirmed the covenant, he clarified the promise. So when he gave the promise of a son to Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah schemed to take that promise into their own hands and give Hagar to Abraham, God made known that Ishmael was not the son of whom he spoke who would inherit the promises. And when Isaac was born, God confirmed his covenant with him, just like he later did with Jacob over Esau. And then again, in Genesis 49, Judah over his brothers. Just before Jacob died, he gathered his sons to himself to bless them, and as he said in Genesis 49.1, to prophesy over them what would happen to them in the days to come. And do you remember what he said to Judah? Listen again, and maybe some of the picture will become clear. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Know the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples binding the foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The significance of that prophetic blessing was not only that God had chosen the tribe of Judah to bring forth the kings that would reign over his people, 
but that in choosing the tribe of Judah as the tribe through whom Israel's kings would come, he was also identifying the tribe through whom his covenant promise would be fulfilled of a redeemer who would not only rescue his people, but rule over them in righteousness as king. Remember, at every critical juncture along the way, God reiterated and clarified in Genesis 49 is his reiteration of his promise of a redeemer king for his people, which is why we trace the lineage from Eve on down through Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 to Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and here in Genesis 49 to Judah. And where Ruth comes crucially into this picture is Ruth serves to clarify once again which son. Which son is the one through whom God is going to confirm his covenant, clarify his promise, and eventually, in his perfect timing, bring forth this Redeemer King? And the answer that we find in the book of Ruth is, Ruth 4.18, it's Perez. It's not Zerah. So we've said that Ruth serves to show God's faithfulness to his covenant promise, to provide his people a redeemer king. The book's linked on the one end to Judges, so much so that you can read from the end of Judges to the beginning of Ruth with almost no difficulty in transition at all. Judges 21, 25, identifying the problem, namely, there was no king in Israel, resulting in everyone doing that which was right in his own eyes, which meant for the nation chaos and rebellion and judgment. And Ruth picking up on that context in its opening words and setting out in the rest of the book to hold out the hope for God's people in his promise of a redeemer who would rescue them and then reign over them as king. And by the end of the book, us not only being full of hope in God's sovereign goodness and covenant faithfulness, but having clarification concerning the manner in which he intended to fulfill his promises. Perez, not Terah through Hezron, through Ram, through Aminadab, through Nashon, through Salmon, through Boaz, through Obed, through Jesse, and to David. Which, just as a side note, if we're talking about setting, I think helps clarify that while the people of the book of Ruth and the events that unfold take place during the period of the judges, so before David, the person who wrote Ruth must have written long after the events that took place since they were able to name David by name. But we don't know much more than that. But on the front end, there's a connection with the end of Judges and the problem that God's promises set out to solve. On the other end of Ruth, so by the end of Ruth, we reach the solution. Perez, down through Obed, to Jesse, to David, and what comes next? What comes next, if you keep reading, is the books of First and Second Samuel, which do what? They not only unfold how kings came to rule over Israel, but specifically how David the king after God's own heart, the son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz and Ruth up the line through Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar, Judah, the son of Jacob, Jacob, the son of Isaac, Isaac, the son of 
Abraham, up the line to Noah, and further up the line to Adam and Eve. And the significance of Ruth's connection on the other end, ending with David and connected to First and Second Samuel, becomes clarified when God reiterates his covenant promises to David. And clarifies for his people in that covenant reiteration, confirmation, as great as David was. David was not the redeemer king that he promised would crush the head of the serpent. And lift the curse of sin and reverse the effects of the fall and reign in righteousness over his people. David was only a forerunner. And a picture and a type of the true Redeemer King who would reiterate, who would inherit, sorry, inherit the promises given to him and to his ancestors. And when God reiterated, and clarified his covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. God clarified that David's true heir, unlike any of his predecessors, would not merely serve as another step along the way to eventually pass down the throne and with it the promises to another, holding out hope and something future for his people. As Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel 7, this king, this true David, this true son of Abraham, this Serpent-crushing, curse-lifting, effects of the fall, reversing, Redeemer, King, would rule forever. Let's read the words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones from the earth. It sounds so much like God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, when the the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David's true heir would reign as king forever so that his people finally would need look no further. Their redeemer would complete his work of redemption, crush the head of the serpent while having his own heel bruised to the death, only to conquer death, rise from the grave and ascend to his throne. So, brothers and sisters, as I've kind of titled this week's sermon, just an intro to Ruth. What I'm saying is the book of Ruth fills this crucial, crucial gap. It shows us how you get from Judges to First and Second Samuel. Or how you get from Judges 21-25, no king, rebellion, and judgment, to Second Samuel 7. A king after God's own heart on the throne, ruling over his people under God's covenant, safe in their own land. 
all of which is meant to point us to the true king after God's own heart. And the people of his inheritance, whom he redeemed by the shedding of his blood for the triumph over sin, death, hell, and Satan. And if by the end of this introduction you're thinking to yourself, well, what about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Moab and Bethlehem and famine and everything else in these four wonderful chapters? Doesn't that big picture emphasis minimize all the detail of these four chapters? And my answer is absolutely not. On the contrary, it magnifies all that detail because the detail is God's sovereign means that in his goodness he uses on the way to hold out hope for his people toward the fulfillment of his promises in Jesus, which is what we will seek to explore in the next few weeks to come. So the big picture of Ruth is the hope of redemption Promised in God's covenant kindness, preserved in God's sovereign goodness, and fulfilled in God's unfailing faithfulness in the person and work of his son. And in part, through Naomi, through Ruth, through Boaz, through their suffering and struggle and ultimate blessing, brothers and sisters, we need look no further. It's what the book is meant to communicate and hold out this hope we need look no further so once again this morning i am calling you to look no further because your king has come and he has accomplished redemption and he has risen from the dead and he reigns and he will forever So in life and in death, may he be your only hope of redemption. May he be on the throne of your heart today. Join me in prayer. Father, we see on display in this book, once again, your sovereign goodness. And for us, Lord, that's, It's a generality that we impose on every detail of of life, but it's a generality that points us to the more specific. Your sovereign goodness comes in and only in, through and only through the person and work of your Son and your redeeming purposes through him for your people so that you might be glorified and we might be filled with joy in you forever. And once again, this morning we are drawn drawn to attribute praise to you for how you in your goodness by your sovereignty unfold your purposes in your people father i pray that our hearts might be ready now ready now as we see the big purpose of this book to walk through all of the details and identify with the struggle and the suffering and the loss and to have our hope held out with Naomi and Ruth of redemption and to find our place of rest that our redemption is accomplished.
in the person and work of your son. Father, you're, you're kind. You're kind to give us 66 books to tell this story again and again and again. We thank you for another chance this morning. In Jesus' name.